taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, we're bringing to you today the Word of the Lord. This is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Avalo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, we've been praying for you. Uh, we just want to kind of point you to uh, the website since we're uh, kind of deep in the in the in the in the discussion of Molinism and uh, and everything that we're doing, we want to point you to the website and uh, kind of maybe go through and and uh, look up some of the uh, information that we have on Molinism, uh, Calvinist, uh, Arminian view, so uh, you can kind of get your footing on where we're what we're talking about uh, on on the second uh, go round uh, with Dr. Zach Breidenbach. Hey, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, good. It's good. <laughs> Haven't seen you in a long time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if like, for those of you who didn't catch like, last podcast, we're doing a back-to-back podcast, so that was kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So we have a. You want to go ahead and introduce our guest? We just kind of got a part two of this. Absolutely. We want to welcome back uh, Dr. Zach Breitenbach uh, with, with us, who is the author of Slipping Through the Cracks and recent graduate of the Ph.D. program in Theology and Apologetics at good old Liberty University. Go Flames. Uh, Zach, we want to welcome you back to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Good old. Thank you. Enjoying it. <laughs> good old Liberty University. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so last week, man, we covered a bunch of stuff. We were talking about uh, Molinism, the problem of of uh, the contingently lost, how it's different from the problem of the unevangelized. We talked about uh, key features of the book slipping through the cracks. We uh, discussed Molinism. What is it? Can can one be hold a soteriology that is uh, largely Calvinistic or largely Armenian and still be a Molinist. Uh, we talked about how Molina, or how, excuse me, how Molinism is consistent with the Bible and uh, reasonable to believe. And we talked about uh, how Molina's viewpoint of mental knowledge and how it uh, fits in with predestination. And we also mentioned Francisco Suarez and the distinctions he makes on the issue uh, as opposed to Molina. So, Zach, let's jump back in on this. And so, uh, in the book, you identify three categories of Molinist theodicies concerning the problem of the contingently lost that had been proposed. Um, 
So let's first go back and redefine for our listeners again. What do you mean by theodicy? Yeah, so last time we were talking about what a, what a theodicy is. The goal of the book is to give a theodicy uh, involving this problem of the contingently lost. A theodicy is going to be an account uh, to try to reconcile God with, uh, with evil, or at least some aspect of evil. In this case, we're talking about sort of a soteriological uh, problem involving evil. Soteriology is uh, the study of salvation. So, so we're talking about uh, the problem of the contingently lost. What about those people who um, are lost in the actual world? They're, they're not going to be saved, but they would have been saved in some other circumstances. Uh, their, their, their lostness in some way seems to be contingent upon uh, their circumstances. And, uh, and some would say this is a problem. If God is, is good uh, and, and powerful and all-knowing, and especially if he's all-loving, he should, he should not allow this sort of thing to happen. So a theodicy is trying to reconcile a good and loving, powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing God with this sort of uh, situation that we have on our hands, where there, there are people that, that seem to have rotten circumstances to accept uh, the gospel, and surely some of these people would have would have been saved if, if only they had had better circumstances. So how's, how are we going to reconcile God uh, with that? Um, that? That's what a theodicy is all about, giving an account to, um, that, that's plausible, and consistent with the uh, with Christian scriptures, that's going to show how God is consistent with this um, this sort of circumstance, this soteriological evil. Okay, so in your book, you define three categories, uh, or th- three categories of Molinist theodicies against the PCL uh, or the problem of the contingently lost. So we want to take each category and kind of go through them and uh, first maybe explain uh, what the what uh, the theodicy is involved, uh, and then um, maybe why you reject the certain category. So the first category is uh, the category one of Molinist theodicies against the PCL appeals to post-mortem salvation, and this is the theodicy of uh, Donald Lake and uh, Jerry Wales. Good guy, uh, Jerry Wales. Yeah, yeah, so... Um since I'm giving a Molinist theodicy uh, myself, and last time we talked about what Molinism is, um, I wanted to kind of critique whatever Molinist theodicies were out there that have to do with this this problem, with this difficult issue, and say, how have other people applied Molinism to this and tried to tried to figure this out? And and so I, as I surveyed uh, these different uh, theodicies, these different kind of ways of trying to reconcile God with this issue. Uh, it seems to me there are sort of three basic categories or uh, umbrellas under which we might uh, lump certain um, certain theodicies. So Donald Lake and Jerry Walls, they've proposed a similar kind of idea. So, so it's different, but it's kind of similar. And both of them use Molinism to deal with this. So let me kind of briefly summarize what they do, and then I'll, I'll kind of tell you why that's not my view and why I don't, I don't really uh, go with that. Well, um, Donald Lake is going to say, well, what if uh, God is going to save people? Well, first of all, let me back up one second. All, all of the views under, under this first category are 
uh, views that involve post-mortem opportunities right, for salvation. So um, Donald Lake is going to say, in his particular view, what if uh, God is going to save people based on what he knows they would have done under the most optimal circumstances? Okay, so the, so the person never actually has to make a choice to accept the gospel in their life. Uh, instead, uh, salvation is going to be based on just God's mere knowledge of, of what that person would have done under the most ideal, uh, optimal, best circumstances. Um, so if it turns out that a person, you know, they, they never are saved in this life, but God knows that they would have been saved had they been in some more ideal circumstances, then just like that, automatically they're saved in the afterlife. It's not based on what they actually did and whether they actually accepted Christ. It's just based on God's middle knowledge of what they would have done under better circumstances. Uh, and Jerry Walls uh, is going to have a view that's, that's similar uh, but different. Walls is is uh, an Armenian who's open to Molinism, but he's not necessarily sure Molinism's true. But he's saying if Molinism were true, this is this is probably a good way for God to use his middle knowledge. And he's going to have another kind of afterlife view. And what he says is, what if God's going to give people the optimal circumstances under which they would freely choose to be saved at the moment of death? Right or, or in the afterlife, right when they die, right, right as they're dying, right after they die, they're going to be put into these optimal circumstances. And God knows what those optimal circumstances are because he knows with his middle knowledge under what circumstances that person would accept. So he's going to put them in that. So unlike Lake, Wallace thinks, well, you actually do have to actually accept Christ. God's not going to just save you on the basis of what he knows you would have done. But he's going to give you those optimal circumstances. He's going to put you in, in circumstances where he knows you will freely choose to accept him, if there are any like that, any such circumstance. Uh, and so then, in the end, for, for Lake and Walls, the only people who are lost are going to be people who would be lost under any circumstances, even the most ideal. Now, those are the only people that aren't ultimately going to be, uh, be saved. Well, uh, what do I think about this? I, I don't think this is uh, well supported by the Bible. Um, both of them are going to deny, um, I don't think we talked about this last time, the, the words exclusivism and inclusivism. But maybe I'll unpack this here really br briefly. But these views are going to de deny both of these, right? So some Christians are exclusivists. Uh, I would be one of them, where, which holds that you have to actually hear the gospel and respond to it to be right. saved. Whereas an inclusivist would say, you only have to respond to whatever revelation you have. And then you're, you're still saved through Jesus, but you don't have to have ever heard of Jesus to be saved. God's going to save you. Uh, he's going to apply what Jesus did for you, uh, even though you've never actually heard of Jesus and you never consciously placed faith in Christ. But you, you responded to what you did know. Well, the view of Lake and Walls doesn't even accept inclusivism. It doesn't accept exclusivism, certainly. Because uh, God's going to save people without them ever having explicit knowledge of the gospel during their lifetime. And it doesn't even really accept inclusivism because you can be saved uh, without even responding to general revelation. Uh, what God reveals to everybody in nature and conscience. You don't even have to have really any kind of implicit faith in this life. An inclusivist says you at least have to have like an implicit faith in this life based on what you do know. So they're not even uh, accepting that. It's you know, one can be saved without exercising any faith at all. 
in this life. And surely that is uh, problematic. The Bible really does stress that God's grace is given to those who accept it by faith. And, and I don't hold out hope that um, one can go through life without exercising uh, faith and, and, and be saved in that way. Um, and the Bible doesn't say that anyone's going to be judged according to what they would have done, right? I mean, it just doesn't say that. Like, in Matthew 11, for example, think about what Jesus says. He, he's, he's talking to some of the cities that, uh, that saw his miracles, you know, like Capernaum. And he's saying, uh, woe to you, because even Sodom, if Sodom had seen the, the miracles that I'm performing for you, they would have repented and turned to God um, if they had just seen that. Uh, and so they, it will be more bearable, he says, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum, because they would have repented if they saw what, what uh, you're seeing. So the Bible doesn't say, well, God's going to save Sodom because, uh, you know, they, if there, there were more ideal circumstances under which they would have repented. No, it says they're going to be judged, just not as severely as those who rejected even the greater revelation of God's uh, Miracles, and there's there's many other passages in the Bible too, like that seem to emphasize urgency, you know, in coming to uh, Christ and, and accepting the gospel, like the parable about the, the unwise virgins who weren't prepared for the bridegroom, and um, the author of Hebrews says it's appointed for men to die once, and then the judgment. So I'm just not really comfortable uh, with this view for for biblical reasons. Um, and there's other reasons, actually, I have besides those, but that'll at least get you started on some of the reasons I'm not uh, not too crazy about going that direction. Sure, C- Curtis, do you have any follow up questions? No, I, I, other than the, other than um, you know, how do we how do we deal with Molinism? I guess being tied to um, a, a a Catholic. I guess uh, thought, and and how we, how can we bring that into modern Christianity and not be tied to uh, the Christian or the, the the Catholic thought of of uh, you know purgatory or praying for the dead or or any of those things. Yeah, yeah, this is good, and and um, I'm glad we're talking about this. Some people are anti-Molinist purely because. Right. Uh, it came from a, a uh, Jesuit theologian. Yeah. Right? And, and, and the same is true for Thomism as well, from what I understand. Correct. Yeah, and, and we, we want to be careful of sort of a, a genetic sort of fallacy, right, where we're going to just sort of invalidate <laughs> a genetic fallacy. Where, where it yeah. came from, right? We don't want to do that. Um, what's important to recognize is there's nothing about Molinism that is specific to Catholic theology. It's not like it really ties into... I mean. There are Molinists all across the theological spectrum. It's not just a mm-hmm. Catholic doctrine. It might have originated with a Catholic thinker, but that doesn't mean that uh, it, it it somehow has implications that tie it to other Catholic doctrines. Like, right. really, I can't think of any Catholic, specifically Catholic doctrine that Molinism is tied to, whereas if you're a Molinist, then you have to accept this Catholic doctrine, which Protestants don't mm-hmm. accept. There's, there's nothing like that. Um, Molinism is just a view of God's knowledge, a higher view of God's knowledge, I think, than one that rejects Molinism, because it's just saying God knows all things, even what free creatures would yeah. do in other circumstances. So we shouldn't 
we shouldn't be too concerned, I think, just because, well, I'm not Catholic and this came from a Catholic, therefore this is uh, suspicious and uh, I don't think I ought to believe this. Um, there's really, in fact, Catholics, there was a big controversy among within the Catholic Church. Molina died uh, without really knowing what was going to come of his doctorate of middle knowledge. They, there was a lot of, uh, at one point, the Pope even said to Catholics, you need to stop talking about this. This needs to stop. And, and eventually, in the end, he, he said, we're not going to say that Molinism is true, and we're not going to say it's false. It's acceptable for a Catholic to believe, but it's also acceptable if a Catholic does not believe it. So that alone ought to tell you something, right? I mean, it, it's not like this is uh, inextricably tied to Catholic doctrine. They don't even affirm. This isn't even something that the Catholic Church says is, is clearly true or that you're obligated to believe this as a Catholic. So mm. that's what I would say about that. So we've kind of explained the first category. Uh, could you define the second category called the, lo the lost lack of soul? This is a very intriguing concept. The lost lack of soul by David Hunt. So what does Hunt argue and why do you reject it? Yeah, so Hunt is going to come up with a, a, a different kind of uh, uh, view here. It's actually creative and interesting. Hunt is not a Molinist, uh, interestingly, but he says if Molinism were true, um, God ought to be able to do this. And he, and he, he suggests something here, which I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, basically, Hunt says, uh, God, if he has middle knowledge, ought to be able to bring about universal salvation. And here's how he could do it, according to Hunt. Uh, what God could do is he could create everyone who is going to be saved uh, is a real person with a real soul and a mind. And everybody else who is, is just playing the role of lost persons, but they're not real people. They're soulless, mindless automata that look like humans. They look just like anyone else. And you wouldn't know the difference. But, but in reality, they're not. They don't have a soul and they're not a real person. And so all these lost people are doing is just playing a role. Like, um, you know, it's not as though the, uh, God can just create a world where everybody freely chooses to be saved. It's only got to be in certain circumstances where people would make the choice to be saved. And, and surely... Some people would choose to be lost. So Hunt is like, well, yeah, but what if God could just make the people, instead of those people being real people who play the role of the lost people that have to exist, presumably, why doesn't God just create soulless automata to play that role? And so nobody has to really go to hell. Anybody that wouldn't be saved is, is a soulless uh, sort of simulacra or automata, and, and everyone who else is a real person. And that way there's universal salvation um, nobody has to be lost. That, that, in a nutshell, is what he's saying. Now, Craig actually responds to Hunt, and I totally agree with Craig's critique of Hunt. Basically, Craig says this is massively deceptive of God <laughs> and, and just totally unworthy of God. I mean, it means that many people that you have known and loved, maybe your wife, maybe your kid, who knows? These are not even real people. You've been misled to believe you're loving somebody who's Who's, who's really a soulless uh, automata, right? It, it is not even a real person. It's just massively deceptive. And uh, maybe they're one of the extraterrestrials that's supposed to be. Maybe they're one of the extraterrestrials that's supposed to be revealed June twenty fifth. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, that's coming up. <laughs> yeah, and this podcast likes to be after that. Uh, free will, because then they would be responsible for this. He's trying to take away uh, any kind of um, personhood from the, the lost. They're, they're not real persons at all or with any kind of free choice. They're just basically machines that look like humans, you could say. But but really, the, the other big problem, besides being massively deceptive, is that makes God uh, responsible for all the evils that are done by these soulless beings, right? Like, so a, a lost person rapes a child. Uh, God was doing that. It's not like there was a, a mind inside that being that was choosing to rape that child. God was causing it to rape the child because he knew it's only in circumstances where God is doing this that everyone else is going to be saved. Yeah, that's, that's a and horrid, that's a horrid thought. God the author of horrible evils. So that's just... I can't. I can't even begin to uh, uh, think that this could be a possibility. God would consider. Um, so yes, it's a Molinist view, but it's a horrible one. And yeah, so that, absolutely. It's, it's just to show you that you can be a Molinist and come up with all kinds of ways that God could deal with people and predestine people or save people, and uh, and some of them are uh, reasonable or faithful to the God of the Bible, and some of them are just horrible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty horrible. Absolutely. Uh, Curtis, any follow-up? No, I just didn't know. You don't want to hear my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> you can move on to the next one there. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah that's that's a pretty bad view. <laughs> pretty yeah. bad, bad viewpoint. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the third category, now this is interesting. You take on a heavy hitter here. Uh, the third category involves a, a God using his middle knowledge to optimize the balance of saved versus lost through his providential ordering of human history. Uh, Weemling Craig's famous theodicy falls into this category, as does a recent theodicy from Kirk McGregor. So you're taking on two big heavy hitters here. So your critique of Craig is especially important since you draw upon some of his core ideas in your own theodicy, but reject some of his ideas. So what are the key points of Craig's theodicy? Uh, this is called, uh, op again, optimizing the soteriolo soteriological balance. What are the key points of this uh, viewpoint, and what do you see as its pros and cons? Yeah, yeah. So we've seen like the first category involves like postmortem salvation. The second one involves like soulless automata. Well, McGregor and Craig are going to fall under a third sort of category, a third umbrella, which involves trying to optimize the balance of saved versus lost in this life in, in some way. Um, so Craig's view is, is clearly uh, the most prominent Molinist uh, view or theodicy when it comes to this, this problem. And uh, so I like a lot of what Craig does, and I engage a lot with Craig and his, his uh, theodicy, and I'm going to adapt some of it. Actually, a lot of it I really like, but I'm going to depart from him at, at, at some important places as well. Here's kind of in a nutshell what, what Craig does. I think you can kind of um, encapsulate it with sort of three key things that he's trying to do and his, and his theodicy. The basic thing that he's trying to do is, uh, before I get into the three things, his basic goal is to say that we don't know that every that there is anyone who's contingently lost. Okay, that's going to be what he's trying to accomplish here. He's going to say, for all we know, nobody is lost in this world but would have been freely saved in some other World, mm -hmm. some other way that reality could be. For all we know, if God has middle knowledge, um, he could have arranged the world so that 
that doesn't happen. Nobody is contingently lost. So then the problem of the contingently lost sort of goes away. So let me give you the three um, the three parts to his theodicy and how he's trying to do that and achieve that goal. So first he's going to say um, all of the lost, everyone who's lost is would have been lost under any circumstances. Any circumstances. Now, sure, they're lost in the circumstances they are in this reality in the world that God made. But God could have put them in any circumstances, so, and they wouldn't have so, lost. So that's in line more with the Soresian uh, congruent fashion than necessarily Molina's viewpoint. Because in the last podcast, didn't you say that Molina held, held the viewpoint that it could have changed in different worlds? Craig, is, Craig seems yeah, to be arguing something. I don't know something. if Suarez would have taken a stance on this or not. He, Suarez just wanted to say God wants to damn certain people. Mm-hmm. He wants certain people lost, and he's going to create a world to make sure that happens. Uh, Molina definitely would disagree with this part of Craig's theodicy for sure, because he Molina, uh, as I explained last time, wants to say everybody who's lost is contingently lost, mm-hmm. and everybody who's saved is contingently saved, so that God could have brought it about that uh, any saved person it would have been lost, or any lost person would have been saved. It's all up to God in, in terms of which world he wanted to create. Um, but Craig is going to disagree with Molina on that, and he's going to say, and again, this is just a proposal. This is just uh, uh, Craig's not saying this is necessarily true. He's just saying if this were true, then this sure. would resolve yeah. the problem. And so he's saying, what if it's the case that everyone who's lost would have been lost under any circumstances? Uh, Craig calls this transcircumstantially uh, damned, uh, meaning. That's just a fancy word for saying what I just described. Under any circumstances, across any circumstances, this person would have been lost. There is no world God could have created, no circumstance where this person would have ever chosen to be uh, saved. Million-dollar word there for you. Yeah, another really, really long word that that we can throw in the mix here. Um, So that's sort of the first pillar of what Craig is doing. And this this first pillar, this first claim, if— if it were consistent with scripture, which I don't think it is, um, would be enough to undercut the problem of the contingently lost. Because there would be no contingently lost, right? So that the, um, he's basically denying that, that that there are any, at least if this is true. Um, so I'll, I'll talk later, you know, how I critique it and why I think there's biblical reasons to be suspicious about that, uh, that claim. Um, the second sort of component of what Craig is doing is that he wants to say that all persons receive sufficient grace to be saved in this life, right? Everyone has a genuine opportunity at salvation. So not only is everybody who's lost, trans-circumstantially lost, they'd be lost no matter what, but even those people, even people who are who are lost, he gives them an adequate amount of grace so that they, they had an opportunity to be saved. Nobody goes through life without at least having an opportunity. Now, how does he do that? He appeals to inclusivism, which I've mentioned uh, earlier. He thinks that um, if you respond to the revelation that you have, uh, even if you've never heard the gospel, if you respond appropriately to what you do have, you'll be saved through Christ even without hearing him. That way, uh, everyone has an opportunity because everyone has general revelation, right? Everyone uh, can, can respond to God's revelation of himself. Craig often talks about like a Native American uh, on this continent before the Europeans came over. Imagine this this Native American. He's never heard the Christian gospel, but he looks into the 
sky and sees the stars and he thinks there must be a great spirit who made all this. And he looks into his heart and he senses God's moral law that's written on his heart. And he says, I need to treat my fellow man uh, with love and compassion. Um, and so he does the best he can to honor the great spirit and to live up to the moral law in his heart. And, and he does the best he can with what he knows through nature and his own conscience. And he'll be saved in that way. And since everybody has access to general revelation in their own conscience, um, everyone has an opportunity to be saved, even if they don't take advantage of it, even if they uh, are lost. Uh, so that's that's the second component of his view, is that everyone at least has an opportunity to be saved through inclusivism. And then the third sort of component of what he's doing, his third claim is God wants to optimize the balance of saved and lost using his middle knowledge the best he can. So th this is to, to address the question of like, well, why did God have to create, you know, so many trans-circumstantially lost? Why create them and that sort of thing? He said, well, there have to be some people who are lost, potentially, because you just can't necessarily create a well-populated world where everybody is, is safe. But God wants to create as few people that are lost as possible relative to as many saved. So God, in his middle knowledge, is arranging the world so that there's a, an optimal balance or an optimal ratio of saved versus lost. So he's, he's trying to create as few of these trans-circumstantially lost people as possible and as many that are saved. And he's using his middle knowledge uh, to do that. So those are sort of the three uh, pillars of what, uh, what Craig is is trying to do. And I think there's a lot of great stuff to that, but I also think there's uh, some problems and uh, be happy to tell you what I think about it. Sure. But I'll pause on you. Yeah. Any, any questions or Curtis? No, I, I was just going to make a statement um, other than the, to hear Bill Craig's um, when he's, when he's talking about this type of, middle knowledge he even talks about uh god cr could have created a, a a area where he he placed people in a position where they would be able to hear the gospel and knowing with his middle knowledge those that would not that would reject his um reject uh his his uh his cry for them uh would reject jesus he he placed them in a in a spot where they would where they wouldn't hear it anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's the idea. God providentially places people uh, mm -hmm. into the circumstances where they they are, and so anyone who's lost can't say to God, uh, "If only you would let me hear the gospel," because I never heard it in my lifetime. Then I would have been saved, and God could say, "No, I knew that even if you had heard the gospel, you would have been lost. In fact, you would have been lost." No matter what I gave you, you're trans-circumstantially lost. Mm. No, no one mm. can come to God and say, if only I had Christian parents, if only this, if only that. No matter what they come at God with and say, yeah, yeah, if only this, God can just say, no, uh, I'm not being uh, unjust to you or unloving. Uh, unloving, I think, is the key thing here, as we talked about last time, because uh, you would have been lost no matter what. Mm. Uh, so philosophically, I will say, I think this view works. There's nothing about what he's saying here that I see any philosophical problems with so long as God has middle knowledge. And it certainly does answer the problem of the contingent we lost. My problem is more going to be along the lines of biblical reasons why I think I would want to tweet right. it. And, and right. jumping into that, uh, Curtis, do you have anything else to add? 
No, no, go ahead. Jumping into that, uh, so, so your problems with this seems to be more biblically uh, related. And I notice here on uh, page 128, uh, you bring up the point about um, Jesus discussing about the people of, of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. If they had seen the works that were being performed by him, that they would have believed. So, so you see some biblical problems with this. Would you uh, care to explain? Yeah, yeah, that uh, that is a good lead into what uh, what I see a problem with here. Um, I his key pillar of his uh, view, more important than any of the others, they all have value. Uh, is that first one that says all the lost would have been lost in any circumstance, and and this this passage in Matthew eleven that we've alluded to before, and you just brought it up again. This this is a key passage here. This is one of a couple of biblical reasons why I'm not persuaded that. That, that really fits comfortably with scripture that all people would have been that are lost would have been lost under any circumstance because think about what jesus says in matthew 11 to uh to the people of capernaum and other cities where he was doing his miracles he's saying woe to you if uh if sodom and tyre and sidon if they had seen the miracles that are performed in you then they would have repented and sackcloth and, and then he goes on and says i tell you the truth um it'll be uh, more bearable on the day of judgment uh, for Sodom, right, than for for you. So, um, if Jesus means this literally, these people are not trans-circumstantially lost, right? If he means this literally, what he's saying is, these people would have repented had they had different uh, revelation. Uh, and, and so, I, I think this is this is a clue that maybe we don't want to go in that direction. We want to leave some room for some people that may be contingently lost, at least certain types of contingently lost people. And, and you, go, um, you go on to say that he, he explains this uh, by saying that he interprets Jesus' statement as being hyperbole in this, in this regard. Yeah. yeah, he does, which most uh, commentators on the book of Matthew would not agree with him, and I certainly would not. Um, there's some contextual clues that Jesus means it literally. There are some clues here. Um, Jesus ties the fact that um, these people had rejected his miracles and rejected him, and yet so uh, Sodom would not. He ties that to Judgment Day. And he says, therefore, I tell you the truth, it'll be uh, more tolerable, more bearable for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom on the Day of Judgment uh, than for you. So um, it, there's no doubt Jesus did intend to shock his Jewish listeners by comparing them to Sodom. Right? There was some some level of shock value he was going for there. But then why would he go on and say that uh, uh, the wicked cities of like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon would be judged less severely? It seems to me the counterfactual statement about what these wicked cities would have done if they had seen Jesus' miracles is tied to the real world fact about how they're going to be judged less severely. Yeah. So if the statement were hyperbole and the lost people of the wicked cities of Sodom and these other cities were, were really trans-circumstantially lost, um, then they would have done the same thing as Capernaum. They would have rejected the miracles of Jesus as well because they would have been lost no matter what the circumstances. They would, have, they would not have repented. Um, so it, it seems... Um, that Jesus really means this. He's not just 
shocking them with hyperbole. He is shocking them for sure, but it's not just that. Uh, why why should they be punished less severely? Why should why should it be more tolerable for Sodom when they would have done the same thing as Capernaum had they seen the miracles of Jesus? Right? If if Craig's view is right, if that's what they would have done, they would have done they would have been lost no matter what. Well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, if God punishes some lost people less severely just because they receive less revelation and he doesn't take into account that all of the lost are transcircumstantially lost, it seems to me that would be a problem in itself because some people would be punished more severely just because they had the bad luck of be, being given more revelation. Right. You know, uh, right. Sodom would have done the same thing. So why should they be punished less severely when they would have done the same thing? But that's not what Jesus said. So most Bible commentators do take this to be literal. And, uh, and, and, and I, I think there's good contextual reason to take it that way. And you uh, kind of want to stir the pot here. Uh, Curse, we would never stir the pot on this podcast, would we? It's already <laughs> stirred, buddy. <laughs> well, you talk about the uh, issue of apostasy and, and the yeah. problem you see here with yeah. this. Yeah, now this is very controversial among uh, evangelical Christians, obviously. Not, not everyone. Should we siren, siren, uh, fire off the warning signs or the, the, the sirens? <laughs> well, it's interesting that Craig himself believes it's possible to commit apostasy, right? Apostasy meaning uh, that you, you accepted God's grace by faith, and then at some later point you chose to reject that faith. And you say, God, I don't want your grace. I don't want Jesus. don't want you. Uh, uh, I, I reject my faith. And, um, and Craig thinks that that's possible. Craig believes that you can uh, commit apostasy. And I know this is controversial, but I'm inclined to agree with him on this. And, and one may disagree with me on this or not. I make a case for it in the book. Uh, I think there are warnings in uh, you know, the book of Hebrews uh, that this is a key theme of the book of Hebrews, in fact, warning people that are actually believers not to uh, abandon their faith, warning uh, Jewish Christians not to go back on their faith. Paul seems to speak about apostasy. Peter does. Um, but you don't have to agree with me on that. This, my, my whole point doesn't hinge on this. In fact, I, I just made a separate point about why I don't think there are uh, everyone who's lost is trans-circumstantially lost, which has nothing to do with apostasy. So uh, I don't know how Craig can hold his view that it's possible to commit apostasy and still put forward this this theodicy uh, that that all the lost would have been lost no matter what. Because when you think about it, if someone commits apostasy, that means had they died before they committed apostasy, they would have been saved, right? They would have died while they're saved. And so there is a feasible world that God could have brought about in which somebody who ends up being lost would have been saved, namely a world where they just died a little bit earlier while they were still a believer. So if you think that apostasy is, is possible, then you really can't hold Craig's view. And Craig clearly does, and I cite in the book where he clearly does say that he believes it's possible to, to commit apostasy. And yet, So I just don't know how he would reconcile that with this. Now, I make a case in the book that uh, it's possible to commit apostasy. I know this is controversial. I know not everyone's going to agree with that. But even if you think that my case is at least somewhat reasonable, where it's like, well, I still kind of don't think you can commit apostasy, but... I, I see where he's coming from, and someone of Craig's stature will even think that you can. There's at least something going for this view. Uh, maybe I don't want a, a, a theodicy that depends on 
nobody being able to commit apostasy. And also depends on a different interpretation of what Jesus said about Sodom in Matthew 11. That seems a little implausible. Maybe you would just rather find a theodicy that doesn't commit you to some of those things, if you could avoid it. Um, so I, I leave it to the reader to decide, you know, if they agree with me on the second point. And I, I understand it's controversial, but that would be another problem with the, the trans-circumstantially lost view, uh, if, if I were right about Curtis, follow-up? No, I'm good. <laughs> well, wow. I think there, guys, there's just so much in this book. You need to go buy the book. Uh, the Odyssey of Kirk McGregor. Uh, you take on another heavy hitter in the Molinist camp. Uh, so, so what about Kirk McGregor? Yeah, so McGregor um, has come out with a, uh, a view more recently. And by the way, with Craig, I mean, there's, there, there's problems I have with other aspects of his view. I don't know if you want me to to go into that and talk about, I, I was kind of critiquing the one pillar, but uh, I have critiques of some of the other stuff he does, like his inclusivism, but I can move on to McGregor if you would like me to. Uh, sh- sure. Well, you're out of- well, you want to hit on the inclusivism uh, portion just for a second before going to McGregor, just very briefly? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Craig believes uh, the Bible teaches inclusivism, and he'll appeal to Romans 2.7. Uh, to try to justify that inclusivism is true. I do not believe Romans 2.7 is in any way teaching inclusivism. Now, I myself am what you might call um, open to the possibility of inclusivism, but I I don't think the Bible teaches it. I don't think there's any clear teaching in the Bible that makes me think a person can be saved without hearing the gospel. And so even if it is, I mean, it's up to God who he's going to save. So if if God does want to save some people, even in the New Testament era, who've never heard of Jesus by the way they've responded to other revelation, then he's God and he can do that. And and I'm not going to say he can't. I'm just going to say I don't see any evidence in the Bible that makes me convinced that the Bible teaches inclusivism. And Craig thinks that the Bible does in Romans 2.7. And uh, and I I give a case in the book where I say, no, I, I don't think that's what Paul is actually doing in Romans 2. Romans 2.7 is not making a statement about how if you sort of uh, fling yourself at God's mercy and do the best you can with what you know, then God will will save you. What I think is actually happening in Romans 2 is God is talking about what happens under the law, that under the law, uh, you will be judged according to the law. And he's building a case. Paul's building a case up to the point where he says, but nobody does live up to the law. That's why you need grace. That's why you need Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so Romans 2 is is just saying, uh, like, the first five verses of Romans 2 are all just saying, everybody, Jew and Gentile, um, fall under God's judgment for not living a perfectly righteous life. And then in the passage Craig cites of Romans 2.7, in that passage, like, basically from Romans 2.6 to 11, um, Paul is, uh, or he, he's, he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles are both going to be judged by God impartially. There's no favoritism to the Jews, and uh, God's going to apply the same standard of law to all people when judging them. And so if you're judged under the law, then uh, those who persist in doing good will be granted eternal life. In other words, if you can continually do good, uh, you will be given eternal life. But he's building up to saying, but nobody does that. Nobody Mm -hmm. can do that. It's not possible 
to, to be saved through adherence to the law. Uh, and so that's what he's going to get into in Romans 3. He's going to say, you know, nobody is saved by persevering and doing good works. But the good news is you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to perfectly live up to the law. We, we have grace. We have Jesus. But but what he's doing in Romans 2, 7, I argue, in the book is is not what Craig uh, is saying. It's not teaching inclusivism there. And and someone can read the book and judge for themselves sure. what they think about that. So- so let's move on to McGregor. How does McGregor, uh, uh, he proposes a modification uh, to Craig's theodicy. What, what exactly does he do, and what critique do you have of him? Yeah, so what, what McGregor wants to do is um, he wants to try to fit some of the things that um, that Craig is doing um, with um, Molina's view, right? So Molina, uh, I kind of unpacked that on the last uh, podcast about trying to say everyone who's saved could have been lost. Everyone who's lost could have been saved. Um, and, um, and he doesn't, he likes some of what Craig does, McGregor does, especially he likes the, uh, the optimization of the saved and lost, optimizing the balance. But he really doesn't like the trans-circumstantially uh, lost part. He doesn't, he agrees with me, actually, on that that uh, this isn't biblical, this isn't good to, uh, to say that um, anybody, or that, that everybody who's lost is trans-circumstantially lost. So he's going to try to find a way to try to reconcile Molina's kind of soteriology with some parts of Craig's view, namely the part about optimizing the balance. But, but interestingly, and I'm not sure if McGregor knows he's doing this or not, he, he's more dealing with the problem of the unevangelized than the problem of the contingently lost. He's trying to show how nobody is lost simply because they never heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, his whole theodicy, even if it were perfectly plausible and good and right, it doesn't really, it seems to me, address the problem of the contingently lost. Uh, it doesn't account for uh, all cases where someone would be contingently lost. He's just trying to account for cases of people who never hear the gospel and are lost and that sort of thing. So I think that's one limitation of what McGregor is is trying to do. And I also think, without maybe going into too many details, but you can read what I say about it in the book, he, he seems to devalue the, the power of the gospel uh, to uh, lead somebody to be uh, saved. Um, he, he comes up with, with kind of two types of people in his proposal. He says God would only create two types of people, um, and, and both of those types, it seemed to me, uh, devalue the, the, um, the power of the gospel. It's like one is more likely to respond to general revelation than the gospel, I mean, according to what he's saying. And so that's, that's a major critique that I have of it and the fact it doesn't really address the, the whole problem of the contingently lost. Um, I could go into more, much more detail on it, but that's, that's the summary version of uh, kind of the direction I'm heading with with what he's doing there. Uh, Curtis, any follow-up? No, I'm good. Well, now, let the drum roll begin. So we've looked through the three categories. How would you summarize your own theodicy and maybe explain the theodicy you take because you actually align uh, in some areas with, uh, if if I read it right, you align with uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, notion of Molinism. So, uh, how would you summarize your theodicy and, and maybe uh, uh, explain how you 
deal with the issue in your book. Yeah. So I'm going to disagree with Craig in a pretty significant way, but I'm going to agree with a lot of things that uh, Craig is doing as well. I mean, applying Molinism to this, some aspect of optimizing the balance of saved and lost. Um, but I am going to disagree with him like McGregor does about the uh, everyone who's lost is trans-circumstantially lost. And I already told you why. But I'm going to carve out some space for a couple of types of contingently lost people. And I'm going to say, I think it's okay. It's not, it's, it's not any threat to God's goodness or love or justice or power or anything else that he allows these types of contingent people. Uh, so I'm going to allow for, um, one, somebody could be contingently lost if they required some sort of excessive revelation to be saved. This could be like the sodomites, right? Mm. Uh, Jesus said if, the, if they saw the miracles Jesus performed, they would have been saved. Um well, maybe that's the only thing that would have led them to, to repent, is they, if they had uh, seen something miraculous. And maybe God allows uh, some people to be contingently lost, who um, the only thing they would have responded to is some sort of excessively coercive, um, unduly excessive kind of uh, revelation. Um, that would pressure them. That would... Yeah, they would respond, they would repent, but it's not in the way God wants. It would be too coercive in some way. Um, and I think the case of Matthew 11 leads me to leave, carve out some space for someone that could be like that. Mm. Um, but that's the only thing they would respond to. If that's the only thing they would respond to, God maybe doesn't feel some obligation to, uh, to give them that. Um, that sort of thing. And I, I make a case in the book that that's no threat to God's goodness if he allows someone to be lost, uh, contingently lost in that way. And the second one is, I, if there are anyone who is an apostate, if that is even possible, right? And some might not think it is. But if it is, um, I think that that's no threat to God's love. If he allows somebody to know the gospel and actually be saved, and then later to reject that, and, and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with Jesus. I don't want his gift of grace. I don't want that. And they reject their faith. I don't. I think that's on that person. That's mm -hmm. not on God. We can't hold God responsible yeah. for that. I so I have no problem with saying a good and loving God would allow someone to commit apostasy. If, in fact, anyone ever does commit mm -hmm. apostasy. I don't think it would undermine God's goodness in some way. So I don't mind just saying, okay, there are these people, or at least potentially there are. So that's one thing I do. I, I, I don't say everyone who's lost is trans-circumstantially lost. I leave space for certain types of contingently lost people. But I do want to say God's not going to let anyone slip through the cracks. Anyone's not, God's not going to let people be contingently lost when all they needed was just a little bit more. Like, like maybe they were, had a really hard life. Uh, my friend David Baggett gave me this example when I was wrestling through this. And he says, uh, well, what about like an inner city teen? who just had, had had a hard life. They heard the gospel, but barely, and they never had a good opportunity. They were surrounded by violence and whole, diff, difficult things in their life. And then they die one day in a random uh, gang shooting or something. And if they had just lived one more day, they would have run into somebody who would have presented the gospel in a way they'd never heard, and they would have been saved. And God just let them slip through the cracks. In fact, that was the phrase he used, and that's what <laughs> led me to uh, name the book that. God wouldn't just let someone like that slip through the cracks. And so I want to say, no, God's not going to do that. Uh, he's not going to allow people to be contingently lost in that way. But he will allow certain 
types of contingently lost people, namely the ones I just um, talked about. So I want to carve out some space for that. Um, so that's one thing that I'm uh, doing. I'm also going to hold to exclusivism uh, and, and rather than inclusivism. And um, uh, you mentioned planning. A, I come up with a whole process that kind of incorporates a modified reformed epistemology. And I don't know how much you want me to talk about that, but that's where the planning apart comes in. And I'm trying to show basically how God can draw everyone to himself through a certain process that I propose. I don't know that this is necessarily true, but I think it is biblical and reasonable, or at least consistent with the Bible. And how the only people who won't be drawn to God and come to saving faith is somebody who, because of their own sin, that's the decisive factor that keeps them from being drawn to yep. God. Yeah. It's not their circumstances. It's not them slipping through the crack. So I give some kind of a, an actual process by how this how this could work that incorporates Molinism and Reformed epistemology, and it tries to show how um, nobody is lost other than due to their own hardness of heart. That where God, there is not a way that God could have drawn him them to Himself because they would not um, allow it. Could, could could you briefly describe the process? Yeah, I could. So basically, God knows uh, under what circumstances anyone will be saved. Planning his reformed epistemology, I guess, in a nutshell, is just, um, he, he wants to say uh, Christian faith is is properly basic. I don't know how much, so this is going to lead me into a lot of things that I might want to expound upon. We're dangling the carrot in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Christian faith is warranted as long as Christianity is true, is basically what he's trying to say. Because uh, Christian faith is properly basic, meaning um, you can know that it's true based on the way that God has designed your cognitive faculties and the environment that he's put you into, um, and including the Holy Spirit's testimony on your heart. And so long as sin doesn't keep you from uh, doing so, you will naturally come to recognize that Christianity is true, because God's designed your cognitive faculties He's put you in an environment where the Holy Spirit is testifying to your heart that it's true. And so long as Christianity is true, you're warranted in responding to the Holy Spirit's testimony. And, and your, your, your cognitive faculties are working properly in their environment uh, so that you'll just naturally, you will naturally recognize, yes, Christianity is true. And you wouldn't necessarily even need, um, it, it would be the, as plain as the nose, your, the nose on your face that Christianity is true. So, um, so while, while you name this the reform position, it's not. It's more the Arminian position, is it not? Yeah. So planning uh, is reform. So he's gonna. But you don't have to be reformed to hold to reformed epistemology. Craig, exactly. for example, holds to reformed epistemology. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's thoroughly biblical, but planning that has more of a Calvinistic uh, and more of a Reformed slant on things. He he doesn't want to emphasize very much like propositional evidence or or, or arguments or evidences that would uh, sort of break down that sin barrier, so that you can see in a properly basic way that Christianity is true. Whereas I'm one of the ways I modify what he what planning would do is I I want to allow that God can use arguments and evidence to help break right. down that sin barrier. It's not that Christianity isn't warranted without uh, arguments and evidence. It is. Um, but it's not. Um, but God may 
for some people, uh, use that as a tool to break down that sin barrier. So my process is going to involve showing how God uh, can, can break down the barrier of sin. And uh, as, so long as God can do that, and a person's sinful resistance doesn't make it to where there is no way to break down that sin barrier. That person is, is so simple. Or they would require excessively coercive revelation to do it, or they would apostatize. Um, God will bring a person freely uh, to himself. Um, and, and the process basically tries to show how it can be a person's own sin and not the sin of other people that's decisive and and why they never accept the gospel. Now, now this is very much a simplification, but this is giving you at least some uh, concept of where I'm going with this this whole process. Curtis, follow up. No, just the only thing is it, it, you, what you're touching on, Zach is is uh, you can see those pictures throughout Scripture. You can't necessarily, um, I guess, you could pin it at at each at, at a verse, a, you know, a chapter and a verse, but you could you can see the flow of exactly what you're saying here through Scripture. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, final question. Um, how might your theodicy help us respond to the claim that God's existence is unlikely because some evil seems so pointless? So the issue of pointless evil, how, how, there's an apologetic element to this. How, how does this overcome that, uh, that um, yeah. response? Yeah, so after I go through this whole uh, process of dealing with the problem of the contingently lost, and I give a theodicy uh, against that problem. Uh, it's a soteriological theodicy, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theodicy that's dealing with a soteriological concern. Then I want to say in the last, this last chapter that I write, um, okay, how could a soteriological theodicy, a theodicy that's aimed at dealing with these salvation concerns and contingently lost people and that sort of thing, how can some of the concepts of that theodicy also help us with the broader problem of evil, not just the soteriological problem of evil, but, but the broader problem of evil, like why does God allow so much evil in the world, so much suffering, and so much seemingly pointless suffering as well. And so what I'm trying to do there is show how if God is trying to optimize the balance, and I, I guess I never really talked about how I incorporate that into my theodicy as well, but that's another thing I did. Um, if God's trying to... Um, have these eschatological this eschatological focus this focus on saved and lost this focus on who's going to be saved who's going to be lost trying to maximize how many people are saved if God's goal is primarily eternal outcomes which I think is uh, is reasonable and biblical to think um, then that can help us explain why God would allow so much evil in this world right. and it can also help go. us to explain why some evil might seem pointless. Um, so, for example, just in a nutshell, maybe it's a, it's, it's a world where there's a lot of evil uh, relative to good, far more than God could have brought about. He could have brought about a world with a better balance of good and evil in this life. But maybe God knows what is necessary to get the best eternal outcomes. And, and he needs a world that's like this, a world that has far more evil than necessary, a world that has seemingly pointless evil even sometimes. Maybe, um, for example, uh, some evil seems to be very undeserved, very pointless, just mm -hmm. people suffering and they didn't deserve it. 
Um, and, and there's a lot of instances like that. But maybe it's, it's only in a world where there's a lot of instances of, of what seem to be pointless suffering or undeserved suffering, uh, where the, nothing good seems to come from that instance of suffering in itself. But maybe collectively, um, this is the sort of moral arena that is necessary for the maximum number of people to be saved versus one. And so if God's goal is, is, is very much focused on eternity, I give a number of arguments for why that can help to explain why some some suffering might seem pointless, might seem like it's it's undeserved, might seem like it's excessive, like there's far more evils than is necessary, and yet uh, this all makes more sense why it would seem like that to us when we when we fail to take into account what God is doing in terms of his his goals for us eternally and how it's far more important. Like any pleasure we get in this finite life is swamped by the pain of eternal separation uh, from God. And any pain we experience in this life is swamped by uh, the eternal blessedness of being with God mm -hmm. forever. And so uh, the, the ultimate balance of good and evil is what's most important. And that's going to be mostly determined by eternal outcomes, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. temporary outcomes. And so I just talk about how having an eternal focus and, and these kind of this kind of theodicy I give here could uh, could help resolve some of these uh, concerns that there's gratuitous suffering or there's just too much suffering. I, I give several arguments to that effect. Curtis, any follow up? Well, I just gonna I was gonna say you know um, you're you're what you're saying kind of aligns up with what I remember uh, William Lane Craig saying is is uh, and and I I'm gonna butcher this one up because <laughs> but it's he creates uh, a a environment or a world where the greatest amount of of good or greatest amount of of situations creates the greatest amount of 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 people turning to God. If yeah, it, it, yeah, it, and yeah, and and that's in line with what I'm arguing here. He's like, it yep. may, may only be in a world that's filled with all kinds of evils. Right. Most people will be saved. And Craig says things like that. And I, I actually wrote an article that was published in the last edition of uh, Philosophia Christi that, that has a lot of the uh, concepts from this chapter that we're talking about, where I take that concept that Craig says, and that's kind of in line with both of our theodicies, and says, okay, if, there, if, if, if something like this, this kind of a Molinist perspective where God's focused on eternal outcomes and, and what he's doing in this life is all aimed at eternal things, how can we give? How can we leverage that to give some arguments for um, why that might defuse some of the concerns about there being too much evil or being seemingly pointless? Mm -hmm. And I give some original arguments that kind of branch off of that idea that Craig states uh, as well. Uh, you, so you can read the the article in my book, and also, you know, I say similar things in that. Uh, or you can read the chapter in the book, and you can read the article in the the last Philosophia Christi on that. Zach, I'm going to tell you, this has been a wonderful, wonderful podcast. I yeah, think you do a great job dissecting these viewpoints. And quite honestly, I'm Molinist myself. A lot of, you've brought up some, a lot of things that I've never really thought through uh, concerning the Molinist perspective. And so uh, I think this has actually strengthened my, my uh, belief in the Molinist perspective. But, you know, maybe take pause to think through these different 
forms of Molinism that I never really quite uh, gave attention to. So thank you for your work. Uh, we want to thank Dr. Zachary Breitenbach. You've been listening to Dr. Zachary Breitenbach. His book is Slipping Through the Cracks, Are Some Lost Who Would Have Been Saved in Different Circumstances, uh, published by Whiff and Stock Publishers at Eugene, Oregon, and be sure to check out his website, roomfordoubt.com. Uh, so we've had a wonderful two weeks with uh, Dr. Breitenbach, and so we're going to turn it over to, to Curtis at this time. Yeah, and just uh, wanted to say, hey, while we were while we were on the podcast, I actually downloaded the app, and it, it's a free app, and it downloaded quick. And uh, man, there's a lot of information on it. So go check that app out. It's uh, Reason for Doubt, and it's in your app store. Uh, yeah, any any combination. Oh, Room for Doubt. Yep, <laughs> Room for Doubt. By the very brilliant Dr. Zachary Breitenbach. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank you. Some deep thoughts there. So we appreciate it. So... We here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, Go so your own, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christi. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts, and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged, and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. 
Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.